0: We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We're continuing our summer series, nearing the end of it, called the Psalms of Jesus. And today we are in Psalm 110, Psalm 110. The title Psalms of Jesus is a bit misleading. I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the series because really all the Psalms are the Psalms of Jesus. Jesus used the whole Psalter, I'm sure, as his prayer book throughout his life. And and as we know, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. So this summer, as we've done Psalms of Jesus, we've picked Psalms that have particular relevance to his life and ministry, perhaps psalms that he's quoted or psalms that point to his ministry in a a particular way. There is no greater psalm of Jesus than Psalm 110, I would say. And the reason I'm saying this is because Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. It is quoted more frequently than any other passage in the Old Testament. And the earliest Christians looked to the psalm to understand something about Jesus, this one that they worshiped and served. If you've been a disciple of Jesus most of your life, uh, I would say again, at the heart of our faith is Jesus. And so as we come to the psalm today, I hope that we can learn something more about him, even if we've known him for a long time. And if you're investigating the claims of the Christian faith and just exploring Jesus and whether you are going to give your life to him, then I hope this time together as we understand Jesus through the lens of this psalm will be encouraging and helpful to you as you consider his claims and who he is. We'll get into that together. Uh, The psalm maybe takes us by surprise in that it's the most quoted, but what I'm hoping to do is explore Jesus through the lens of this psalm, through the lens of the New Testament as it quotes this psalm. What we'll see is three things about jesus and then two things about us is the plan as we dig into this together so the psalm begins the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool this first point is about the place of jesus where is jesus as the earliest christians walked with him and then saw him die, saw him rise again, saw him ascend. The question is, where is he? And this psalm, this verse, actually, this is the most quoted verse of the psalm in the New Testament, gives the answer to that question. So where is Jesus? At my right hand. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaking here in the psalm. And it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm is quoted in the very first Christian sermon, which is given by the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And this is how Peter refers to the psalm. He says, preaching to the crowd around him, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you are, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and now Peter quotes the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter concludes his sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter understands the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus to have led Jesus to be at the right hand of the Father. And he uses Psalm 110 to defend that claim. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament that we have, um, in Ephesians chapter one, wrote this as he was reflecting on the power of God. And he longed for the church to understand God's power. He says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul is reflecting and alluding to this opening verse of Psalm 110 to declare that this is how Christians understand where Jesus is after his resurrection and ascension he is at the right hand of the father far above all ruler rule and power and authority and dominion that's where he is the early church interpreted jesus's events in this way because jesus himself actually interpreted what would happen to him in this way so peter and paul are drawing from jesus himself who when he's on trial before the high priest the sanhedrin Right before he's crucified, the high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He brings together Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 in that moment in responding to the high priest. So Jesus interprets what will happen to him through his death, resurrection and ascension to be putting him in that place of being seated at the right hand of the Father. I trust the point is made. We don't want to belabor this, but let me add one more thing. The early church after the scriptural era, the New Testament church, in writing the first in developing the first creed that was used, we believe, by the earliest baptismal candidates, a short, succinct, compact statement that would summarize the truth of the Bible from start to finish included these words in its confession. This is what we call the Apostles Creed, which we say here regularly. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly throne room. So that's about the place of Jesus. Well, what is his position there? The psalm gives us some insight into this. This is really the meat and the heart of the psalm. Being at the right hand of the Father, what position does he hold? The psalm is organized around two divine oracles in verse 1 and verse 4, and they both, they give insight into the position of Jesus in this place. The first divine oracle declares that he is in a position of rule and authority. That's what it means to be at the Father's right hand. So what I'm calling the victorious ruling king. Look at uh, so verse 1, "'Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool.'" So this is going to be some kind of triumph where the enemies of this uh, enigmatic figure here that David refers to as my Lord is, are, are put under his feet. And then verse 2, Yahweh, the Lord, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That means that he has enemies, number one, and it means that he is exercising his rule in the midst of them with his mighty scepter through the power of Yahweh. And that's exactly what the church believes about Jesus now, that he still has enemies. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the authorities of this dark world. We are in a spiritual battle. Jesus still has enemies. Even though he's decisively defeated them at the cross, they are still being put under his feet. First Corinthians 15. uh, Paul refers to this psalm and to that idea. Verses five through seven actually unpack this a bit more. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. If verse two, in a, in a sense, gives us a picture of what's going on now that he rules in the midst of his enemies, verses five, six, and seven clarify what will happen when the kind of denouement comes, when when the climax actually... Um, happens that the enemies will be defeated and crushed and so you get graphic language this makes us squirm a bit and it's uncomfortable for us he will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth there's a resonance here with psalm 2 which is an exhortation to the kings of the earth to kiss the sun lest he be angry with you now fear him and serve him with trembling it says in psalm 2 at the beginning of the psalter now, here at the, at the opening of the last of the five books of the Psalter, it's almost as if we get a picture of what happens to those who don't heed that exhortation of Psalm 2, who resist him. One day he will come and he will execute judgment on them and bring about uh, his righteous judgment, as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, and expunge from his creation that which destroys or mars his purposes. So we get this picture here of a victorious and ruling king. There's this interesting verse, and by the way, the pronouns in 5, 6, and 7, uh, scholars are divided. Is the he here Yahweh, or is the he here the king? We're not exactly sure, and I think in some ways it's nice that we can't say with certainty, because it reveals something about what the psalm is trying to communicate, which is that the rule of this king and the rule of Yahweh are really tightly interwoven, and that in many ways the king is re- merely the representative of the divine ruler, And so what the king is accomplishing, God is accomplishing through him, or what God is accomplishing, the king enjoys the benefits of. And you get this last verse, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he he will lift up his head. It's something about either the refreshment of victory or refreshment in the midst even of the ongoing battle through the refreshment of water. So that's one position that Jesus is in. He's the ruling victorious king. And the second, it comes from the second divine oracle, which is actually the center of the psalm, verse four. So there's three verses, then verse four, then three more verses. The Lord has sworn, so look with me at verse four, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So victorious king, but also in the position of eternal priest. Eternal priest. Here, David, the author of the psalm, recalls the story of Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14. The king of Salem, who we also read about, is the priest of God Most High. An enigmatic figure, to be sure. We don't get much of an introduction. There's nothing mentioned of him afterwards. But here you have someone who is a king and a priest. And this divine oracle in chapter 4 says to this ruler, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are uniquely king and priest, like this enigmatic figure from the Old Testament, from the days of Abraham. Abraham, you might remember, Lot had been stolen by these kings from the east and they had plundered him and taken him away. And Abraham Rightly, as the kinsman of Lot decides, I'm going to go rescue my kinsman and takes with him his 318 trained men. And they go and they defeat the kings of the east and they rescue his kinsman, Lot and his possessions, and they bring them back. And when they do, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, meets them. And again, interestingly, the king of Salem blesses Abraham. In a sense, the the greater blesses the lesser. And then Abraham pays a tithe from his spoils to this king Melchizedek. Again, an enigmatic figure in Genesis 14. But David, here writing the psalm, picks up on that narrative and says that his descendant is going to take up this same kind of vocation that was held by Melchizedek of king and priest. Interestingly, in ancient Israel, king and priest were separated. There were kings and there were priests, and they weren't supposed to mix. In fact, when King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 decides that he's going to enter the temple and burn incense, the priests, in their zealous righteousness, say, no, you can't do this. And then Yahweh reaches out and strikes Uzziah with leprosy on his forehead. And he spends the rest of his life in exile as a leper because he was crossing the boundaries of king and priest verse 4 becomes the source of reflection and meditation by the author of the letter that we call Hebrews and in chapter 7 of Hebrews he reflects particularly on this new kind of priesthood under Melchizedek and how it's applied to Jesus and he makes three main points just briefly one is it means the end of the the Levitical priesthood which is a priesthood by birthright whereas this priesthood, and this is the second point. So the first point is the end of the Levitical priesthood, meaning it could not achieve the perfection that was needed. The second is that this priesthood is not by birthright. It's by an oath from the Lord, from Yahweh, from from the God of Israel. And so Jesus is made priest by a declaration from his father. And then the third point in Hebrews 7 is that this priesthood is forever. Levitical priests are born, get old and die this priesthood there's no record of the death of melchizedek in genesis 14 and so the author of hebrews plays with that this priest never dies an indestructible life he writes about there and so this priesthood lasts eternally or forever so these two roles of victorious king and eternal priest which melchizedek kind of holds together in a way jesus now holds together after the order of melchizedek and he does this perfectly and permanently holds these positions in a way that should encourage the people of God. It should encourage you and me as disciples of Jesus today. High priests make sacrifices for the people, and they also make intercession for the people. And it's no surprise that Paul brings together the idea of intercession with Psalm 110 in Romans 8.33, where he writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? There's Psalm 110. Who indeed is interceding for us. The idea of his priesthood. I mentioned that ancient Israel, the roles of priest and king were separated, but there is actually a way of kind of going deeper in terms of biblical theology of thinking about king and priest united. And let's go all the way back to Adam, or to the first human beings. They were created in Genesis 1, and they were given a mandate, and the mandate was to be fruitful and multiply, but it was also, do you remember, to exercise dominion, over God's created order. So God creates the world, and then he puts human beings, his image bearers in that place of second in command to rule and exercise dominion over the world. In fact, the word for dominion in Genesis one, the Hebrew word for dominion is the exact same word used in our verse or in our Psalm in verse two, that he will rule among his enemies. That word for rule, it's the same word. So there is an echo here, at least of Genesis one. So the first human beings are given the the job of being kings, if you will, exercising dominion. Then in Genesis two, they are charged in the garden. Adam is charged, the first human being, to, to work it and keep it. And those two words for work and keep are repeated then in Numbers, the early chapters of Numbers, in describing the Levitical priest's role in relation to the tabernacle, They are to work it, and to keep it or to guard it, to serve. Work could be serve and keep could be guard, to serve and to guard it. That is their role. But that role was given to Adam and his wife in Genesis chapter two. So we understand that the first human beings had a kingly dimension, exercising dominion, and they had a priestly dimension to what their vocation was as God's image bearers to work and keep the garden. Hopefully I haven't confused you. But in this sense, these two, the kingly and the priestly are brought together And even though the offices in ancient Israel are separated, the ideas are actually held together in an understanding of what our vocation is as image bearers, as human beings made in the image of God. These two roles, then, are uniquely fulfilled in Jesus. And they are uniquely brought together prophetically in Psalm 110. Priest and king. Perhaps it's no surprise that when God rescues his people out of Egypt, he says that they are to be to him a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And then Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 2 and calls us, New Testament Christians, the church, a royal priesthood. Dominion, work and keep, serve and guard. These things go together and Jesus fulfills then this Adamic vocation. Of being a king and a priest perfectly in his person so this raises the third question so that was his position he's at the right hand of the father that's the first point place he is in the position of eternal priest and victorious king that's position thirdly then about his person let's look right at the beginning of the psalm again the lord says to my lord well we, we kind of run over that pretty quickly but jesus doesn't and this is the account we read in matthew 22 that jesus And when he's in conflict with the religious leaders of the day in the first century, and he wants to stump them, he comes to this psalm and says, well, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they say, well, he's the son of David, because everybody, uh, all the Jewish people knew that the Messiah, the one to come, the anointed king, would be a son of David and take David's throne. And so then he throws this psalm in their face and says, well, how is it then that David calls him my Lord? says it here in verse 1. And he says David did this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The first Lord, here is Yahweh, says to my Lord. How can he refer to him as Lord if he is his son? And it says that the Pharisees did not know what to answer and they stopped asking him any more questions because they were stumped. Now, Jesus doesn't answer it here, but he's pointing at something that Uh, I think we can deeply affirm, because he is pointing here as the Lord himself and saying this coming king is actually Lord over even David. And David reflects that in the opening words of this psalm by calling him my Lord. Who then is he? You remember when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples He was asleep in the boat, and the disciples were afraid. They're like, don't you care that we're perishing? And at the end of that little section in Mark chapter 4, they finish and they go, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The only one who could fulfill this vocation of a victorious king ruling over his enemies and a priesthood that never ends is somebody who has to surpass and explode out of the categories of our frail humanity and yet in order to fulfill that for us must also be included in that category of our humanity and I'm not suggesting that when David I don't think Jesus is either that when David wrote this psalm that he knew the full beauty and wonder and depth of the mystery of the incarnation but Jesus sure seems to be pointing us in this direction in Matthew 22 and its parallels in the other synoptic gospels The one who can fulfill this role is the unique divine person of the son who becomes human flesh, enters into the frailty of our condition in order that he might redeem that which had fallen and in order that he might fulfill that which had fallen short of what it was meant to be. And Jesus takes the throne and Jesus perfectly and beautifully as the one divine person of the son fulfills our calling to be priests and kings in himself and this is celebrated enigmatically for sure but it's celebrated in this opening line it's pointed to and jesus points us in that direction so second let's take let me make two comments having talked about the place and the position and the person of the king of uh, and the priest of psalm 110 as the new testament authors interpreted this psalm let's let's think then for a moment about us as the people or the subjects of this king. What can we say about us from a New Testament perspective? The first point I'm going to make is not in the psalm, but it certainly uh, flows out of the psalm in the New Testament. And it's this. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But where are you and I? We, too, are seated at the right hand of the Father. Let me quote to you from the heart of the Gospel in Ephesians, chapter two. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then what? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is an astonishing truth and reality. If you are a disciple of this king and priest, then you, too, have been raised up in a spiritual manner and seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father, in a position of authority and rule and power only by proxy, only by your connection to your engrafting into your incorporation into this one true king and priest. That is where you are. Whatever you feel today, whatever you're experiencing in your life, the truth of God's word is that what is said about Jesus in Psalm 110, verse one, sit at my right hand, is true about you and me who are incorporated by faith into christ jesus and share in that exalted place of being seated at the father's right hand and the second point about us that i do want to draw from verse three which i skipped over earlier is what then does that mean of us when we start to contemplate the beauty and the wonder and the power the graciousness of our king and I should say, he fulfills the vocation of king, king, kingliness, of kingship, and of the priest by pouring out his life. The king actually lays down his life for his enemies in the cross. The king, priests make sacrifices. The king doesn't sacrifice uh, the flesh of, of lambs and bulls and goats that are ineffective, but the king, or the, the priest, actually brings himself as a sacrifice once and for all, a perfect sacrifice. In other words, Jesus fulfills the Adamic vocation of king and priest in a manner that is consistent with the character of our covenant king, the God of Israel, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In pouring out his life and so here we are seated with him in heavenly places what does this mean for us look at verse three your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power or the day you go out with your forces you'll notice the footnotes here in holy garments or on the holy mountains from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours and the footnote is honest for the esv it says we don't know what this means (laughs) we're doing our best here in verse three but the gist of verse three is that on the day that you enter into your power o king your people will give themselves to you fully and freely the word here for offer themselves freely is the exact same word used in hebrew for free will offering and this should start to resonate with us as we think about through a new testament lens what this means What it means here is that when this king enters into his glory and power at the right hand of the father, that those who are his subjects will gladly give their lives to him. They'll gladly pour out their lives to him as an offering and a sacrifice because they know how great he is. They know what he's done. They know his position and power, and they know the love with which he has done all of this. And so they'll offer themselves freely to him to be a part of his ongoing conquest in the world. And that is the calling on our life. So Paul writes in Romans 12 let us offer to him our bodies as a living sacrifice for this is your spiritual act of worship the glorious vision of psalm 110 about jesus as king and priest includes in its in this very vision a vision of the people of this king laying their lives down gladly and freely not begrudgingly Not half-heartedly but fully and wholly handing over our lives to join him in his conquest of the world and the conquest is happening now not through the sword it will come when he returns through the sword but in this moment it's happening through the sword of his word which in that beautiful picture in revelation is coming out of his mouth that more and more people would know the benevolent love kindness and mercy of this king and come under his gracious rule to be seated at his right hand to be seated with him at the right hand is to share in Jesus' kingly and priestly vocation in the world and to offer ourselves fully and freely into that vocation as our act of worship that more and more would experience his grace and mercy that is at the heart of verse 3 i would say at least interpreted through a new testament lens that his, in a sense, his youth and vigor would not go away because the Spirit is continuing to empower us in this work of the expansion of his rule and reign. We worship an amazing king. Psalm 110, it's not an easy psalm, but it's a psalm that the New Testament authors picked up because it pointed to the uniqueness of this man that they knew, that they loved, that they walked with, that they ate breakfast with, that they watched get crucified on a roman cross and then watched him rise from the grave and had breakfast with him after his resurrection and then saw him ascend to the father's right hand and then carried forward his work as those who had been vanquished by his love may we do the same as we serve david's lord let's pray we thank you god for the great vision of the king and priest united in one person your son we pray that you'd help us by your spirit to marvel to marvel at this prophetic song written by David so long before Jesus came to marvel at what he has done when he came and to remember and we we just forget this so easily, God, but to remember the unique position and place of our king Jesus right now and that we have access to him and to you What a privilege. What a blessing. God, renew us in our fervent worship of self-offering that we can share in his kingly and priestly roles. To your glory and praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs)